Hello and welcome to episode 79 of Kaiju Curry House, the fortnightly show that gives you a healthy dose of Kaiju goodness every other Monday. Today I'm joined by my co-host Smokey Joe and we have a special guest, Warren Fay, author of Fragment, uh, Pandemonium and the upcoming uh, final book in the trilogy. So Warren, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, my yep. pleasure. Glad you could be here. Um, as we said, we have a little um, icebreaker question at the start where we just find out what, what we've been up to. So I'll, um, I'll actually kick off and ask you, Warren, um, what have Kaiju been up to? <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm, I just put out a novel called Magenta, um, which is about a sort of color-coded uh, future, dystopian future, where everybody's thoughts are color-coded and uh, their freedoms are uh, dispensed according to what color they are assigned based on their thought processes. Uh, a very much uh, a dystopian idea about the future. And uh, so I put that out. I thought it was important to do that because uh, as we know, the whole culture is but I'm sort of stampeding in that direction. And I, I thought that was a kind of a monstrously horrific thing. And uh, as a writer, of course, um, you need to be free to think. And uh, so I did just put that book out. And uh, now I am focused completely on the third book of the Fragment Trilogy. And uh, it is the apotheosis of both. Uh, it will be the most um, insane monster ever in all of literature and uh, I'm happily creating that monster in my laboratory right now. Excellent stuff. Um, would you like to ask the question to one of us? Well sure I mean you guys uh, you guys love monsters um, and you love large monsters as kaiju fans. Uh, this monster is going to be several miles wide um, and uh, will be one of the most complex uh, monsters ever devised. And uh, I just, uh, I, I think it's fascinating that you guys uh, are focused on kaiju of all things, because um, while I've been working on this and, and uh, creating this crazy monstrosity, um, uh, you know, the, the idea of something that is huge and immense and vast and complex uh, as a monster is, it, I've wondered whether or not uh, people are going to be very interested in it. And it's great to see that people like you guys there, are, there's, are a fan base. Yeah, <laughs> there's a fan base for that. So what, what got you guys interested in Kaiju? Um, in, in, originally, when you were kids, did you look up and were you that little Japanese kid with a little uh, remote control uh, looking at uh, Ghidorah or whatever <laughs> and uh, wanting to control your own monster? <laughs> well, if you go back to episode one, we tell you, <laughs> but... Um, it just came about for me in an old VHS rental store. They were the only dinosaurs I could get my hands on. So that was me. And then, Paul, you were... Um, uh, it was my, my right. parents. Before Jurassic Park, that was it. Yeah, pretty yeah, much. My, yes. my parents watched sci-fi, so um, Lost in Space, uh, Land of the Giants, all sorts of things. And uh, 
the Ray Harryhausen films, and and one day one of the the TV channels here, the terrestrial TV, before satellite and cable, they they were to start airing Godzilla movies every week, and, and that was it. Just started watching them. And, oh, and fantastic! Well, one of my favorites when I was a kid was the War of the Gargantuas. Um, oh. Yes. <laughs> Have you seen Have you seen Frankenstein Conquers the World, the the one that precedes yeah, that with uh, Christopher Lee? Yeah, absolutely. Well, oh no, no, yours, Frankenstein Conquers the World. Uh, no, that one is uh, yeah, completely different. Uh, if you like War of the Gargantuas, it is the sequel to <laughs> to Frankenstein Conquers the World. And what's really neat is Frankenstein Conquers the World is about stem cells, but they didn't know stem cells at the time. Like that was a new, con that, that was a concept that hadn't even been started yet. But if you watch the movie, you're like, wow, this, they had no clue that this was actually going to become a thing like two or three decades later. Wow. Well, one of the, one of the creepiest of all of those movies, of course, um, that we all saw as, as kids, the Kaiju movies was, uh, the Island of the Mushroom People. Oh, yeah. Matango, yeah, very topical. So uh, I'm not sure, Paul, if you've seen this. Warren, I don't think we follow the same people on Instagram, but I'm just going to call this out. Um, X Plus, um, via Rick, their site, um, they have released a picture of a figure, of, which is a Matango mushroom person that people are going to be able to buy now. But I saw that the other day and I was like, oh, wow. Oh, it's, yeah, terrifying. Uh, I, I, as children, uh, I think all, everybody was, was scarred by that experience of seeing the, <laughs> the movie. Uh, what was it called? The, the Island of the Mushroom People? It was something like that. There it was, was the Island. names, wasn't there? They had a lot of names. Matango is um, the original name. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it is a creepy, creepy film. It, it, it is... It's a lot like the thing where everybody starts to like not trust each other. And it, it has a really great psychological effect. You don't need a monster in it, but it is, it is just its own creepy, creepy film. And it's, it's, right. it's a slow burner, but it yeah. is a very intelligent film. Yeah, yeah. And well, uh, my, uh, the third book of the Fragment series will be exploring the fifth kingdom of life which is the, the world of the fungi. And uh, so it will be a, a mind-bending trip into uh, the world of fungus and mushrooms uh, and just how crazy those, uh, that particular branch of life really is. Uh, and I love to introduce people to true things about biology um, uh, because that's where the the action is and that's what's really fun and that's what's interesting is uh, if you can walk away from a book and learn something about real crazy things that are actually in existence it's much more fun and so that's why uh michael Crichton was really uh, always my my uh, weather vane my belt my uh what what i like to look at as uh, as a model of what a good thriller is um because a lot of a lot of there are tons of thrillers out there that don't really take very much time 
to uh, establish a scientific basis, say, uh, for, for what they're doing, especially kaiju things, obviously. Um, they'll just, uh, well, there was some radiation and this thing became, you know, five stories tall, you know. <laughs> well, all right, okay. Uh, and you just go with it. But, uh, but um, I like a science thriller that uh, you can learn, pick up some facts about the, the, the insane world around us. What are your two favorite Crichton novels since he was such an inspiration? Well, Jurassic Park and uh, Andromeda Strain. Those are the two. Uh, I read Andromeda Strain when I was 11 years old. That was one of the first novels that I actually read all the way through, right? And, uh, you know, I, I read The Hobbit and I read uh, uh, The Andromeda Strain and Planet of the Apes and a couple of others when I was that age. And I think you can see all of those movies in uh, all of those books, rather, in, in Fragments and uh, in Pandemonium. It's interesting because whatever you read at that age really gets kind of fused with your foundational way of looking at the world. And uh, when you try to put down a creative uh, writing onto a page, you're going to draw from the things that inspired you. And, and Crichton was one of the very first. So yeah, I, I was so, I'll tell you a little heartbreaking story, if you'd like, uh, about Crichton. Sure. Uh, yeah. When I first got published. Um, okay. Um, I flew to London. Um, and uh, there was the fragment was uh, the subject of a bidding war at the London Book Fair, which is a big deal in England. And uh, it was snatched up by HarperCollins. And so I flew to London uh, to meet my publishers there. And uh, it was it was a really amazing experience for an author. I, I walked in and the gates, the, the gates of HarperCollins opened magically by themselves. Um, it was, uh, they're they motorized. <laughs> as, I was going to say, automatic doors do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're huge gates and they're like the Willy Wonka's, you know, chocolate factory, right? And, and they just like suddenly open up, you know, and you walk in. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, and I walked in and they had this huge reception for me um, with uh, champagne and, you know, wine and, and, and all, all that kind of thing. And everybody was there. And uh, so it was, you know, after 35 years of working uh, all by myself in the dark, uh, writing, um, suddenly this was, you know, is sort of like the rainbow at the end of that journey. And it was really overwhelming. And uh, so I walked in and I was overwhelmed by, by how nice it was. And um, then a, a, a woman came up to me, an elder woman who was introduced to me and she had tears in her eyes. And she said, uh, you know, I just wanted to meet you and thank you and uh, uh, we get, you know, 2,500, you know, manuscripts a year trying to be the next Michael Crichton and all of them are dreadful. And uh, I don't know how you did it, but thank you so much, right? Wow, you know, uh, just a, a 
an amazing thing to say. And I, I said, well, thank you so much. And I, Michael Crichton was a great inspiration to me. And she nodded her head and she left. And as she left, a couple of the other editors there said, well, that's Michael Crichton's editor. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. And so I was bowled over. And, yeah. uh, you know, as, as the party dispersed and everyone went on their way, um, somebody rushed up to us, my agent and my editor there at HarperCollins, and said, I'm sorry, but I have dreadful news. Michael Crichton just died. Wow. And so that's why she had tears in her eyes. And, um, so, wow. It was the worst news I could possibly hear at that moment. I hoped to have met him. I really did. And uh, then that happened, and it was terrible. And it was, uh, and I think a lot of people, when the book came out, because a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, this is the next Michael Crichton. And it's like really too soon, you know? Um, nobody wanted to hear that. And so a lot of people just trashed the book because, and me personally as a writer, like how dare you try to, you know, uh, usurp uh, Michael Crichton's legacy and all this. And I, of course, had nothing, no concept of any of that when I was writing the book. Well, I think it's it's one of those things where it's really easy to say that, but when you crank out a novel, it's not just a thing that you can do in a month, right? Let, al yeah. let alone a year. So, for people to say you know it's along a similar vein of Jurassic Park or something like that, that's a really good compliment. But to say, oh well, he obviously had a crystal ball and knew that Michael Crichton would be on the lips of everybody. No, it doesn't work like that. I'm sure that you were researching Fragment for probably the better part of five years, if not yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it totally shows in your book, the biology and the plot that you have. Just it's, it's just really lovely and linear. You can tell it's a great adventure story because there aren't any really like plots left open. It, it just goes along at its pace. You have a central string of characters Everything's rooted in a good sense of reality. Nothing's too out there. You have creatures which you can reference. You had brilliant illustrations that were already in the book. In my hardcover copy here, there are illustrations, and it's fantastic to see that because my imagination was great, but the illustrations that I saw in the back, you know, like, wow, that's weirder than I thought. <laughs> so obviously, when you look at Fragment, when you take that book out, the folks that could have just gotten on that bandwagon of saying something like that, they really didn't give the book due justice or give it time because it really is a labor of love. And I can tell that you put a ton of effort into it. But anyways, um, let's just get started on Fragment itself. So we have spoken about this book a couple of times on the podcast. I have pitched it numerous times. Um, <laughs> Because it is, it is unique. It, it is a book with creatures. They are prehistoric. They are lethal. They are really unique. And they are not dinosaurs, which is the real appeal. Like so many creatures have just become dinosaurs or dragons 
or just run-of-the-mill kaiju like we're used to seeing. There are a lot of vampire movies. There are a lot of werewolf movies. There are even multiple Gilman now. But Fragment went the somatopod route. And that's very unique. I, I dare say no one else has tread down that same path, Warren. And it's a fantastic book in that sense. So, Paul, I recommended this book to you. and You did. I know and you're fantastic because you're like the one person that I recommend books to and you go out and you read them. So um, it's a thing. You can recommend books to people, but they never read them. Even if they're your best friends, they'll never do it. But um, anyway, Paul went out and read this book and Paul, what was your take on it? Like how, how, in what ways did you enjoy it? Yeah. I mean, let's just go back a bit because as you said, they're not dinosaurs. They're not. Which is because growing up, I watched all sorts of films about there being a lost world, them going through a vortex, a portal, a cave, whatever, and they discover a, a lost world that's just got dinosaurs in. I think, you know, that's, that, that's cool. Um, and you just see it so many times. And then you said, <laughs> you, uh, and you said you know, this book, it's, you know, oh, there's a, there's a fragment, there's a bit that, that broke off. But it's not, oh, there's some dinosaurs that are left there. No, this is evolution that took a whole different route. And that's just part of the reason that it's so fascinating to read because I'm not reading, you know, I could, I could imagine T-Rex, but the creatures in your book are terrifying. <laughs> they are terrifying. <laughs> the discants. Yeah. I mean, it's war. <laughs> well, you know, uh, one of the rules that I set for myself uh, when I was writing the book uh, was that it would be, uh, first of all, it would have to be documentary uh, level reality, that everything that you're looking at looks like you're looking at it through a video camera, that you're actually on the island. And uh, so I developed a style that I call Windex, um, which is there's no separation between you and the island. There's no writer trying to wave his hands and go, yay, here, I'm here, I'm here. No writer, just absolutely windexed out of the, out of the, uh, the experience. And so that you and the island and the other people on the island are there with nothing between you. And uh, so that you, you are one of the people who is, is experiencing this, this adventure. And so that was the first thing. No, no stylistic flourishes, no high on the author, uh, none of that, all the way through the book, right? And so it's just the people and you, and, they're, and you're there with them on the island. And then uh, the, the key rule was to create every single creature had to have some kind of locomotion that just unsettled our, our expectations so that um, nothing moved in the most essential way, moved across the world in a way that you could have ever seen before. So uh, everything locomoted in a completely alien way. So uh, a rolling creature like the Discans um, uh, or uh, multi-limbed creatures like the chimpanzees and the Henders um, or uh, the, the uh, Henders rats and the uh, spigers with this huge spring tail, 
everything was going to locomote in a way that you've never seen before or you you were not uh, familiar with so that you were just completely taken aback and and thrown out of your element and that was the that was the key to devising all of the biology of Pender's Island. That's really cool the really wonderful thing that I remember reading about Fragment was that you you made it terrifying in a way that we already know. So for many people who read your book, I'm sure it may have been the first time that they came across the term a weed species. And when you say a weed species, basically it's, it's like a weed in your garden. You know, you, you will try and get that dandelion out of your yard, but once one is there, you know you've lost the battle. You know, there's just, so... <laughs> With Hender's Island, which is where Fragment takes place, uh, the we every creature is a weed species. Basically, these creatures are so lethal and so ancient, they've evolved similarly to sharks. They are just wonderfully adapted to their environment, and they come from a place where it's just you have to be go, 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 lethal, lethal, lethal. And if any one of these creatures got a foothold on the mainland, it would not be great for humanity. It would not be great for just species in general. They are all weed species. So if you want to think about a rat, so for our listeners who are not aware, rats are terrible wherever they go, especially if it's on an island. So on islands, you get these lovely unique species that evolve in isolation. They're usually beautiful. They're odd. A dodo, for example, that's a pretty, you know, well-understood extinct animal. Pigs, rats, they took out dodo eggs and then dodos went extinct. So rats similarly, you know, like they go after fowl, they, as in birds, they, they kill off eggs, they go after lizards. There's nothing really like that size that's safe from rats and they carry all types of diseases, all sorts of different types of diseases, I should say. And they're just terrible. So that's an example of a weed species, but you made these things like you, at one point you had scientists setting loose other weed species from out from other places in the world, like a mongoose. And they were just like, yeah, let's see how long the mongoose lasts on this island. That way, I mean, things PETA doesn't need to know, huh? I'll tell you, I've, I've gotten so much hell for that. Um, uh, so many people have written to me and said that they, they uh, will never forgive me for what I did to the mongoose. Um, well, <laughs> um, I had to show uh, our, our team getting defeated by their team, you know. And so uh, the best way to do that was to take one of our most uh, agile um, champions and put it on the in the island setting and have it defeated in front of everyone so that later in the book when Zero decides to make a break for it and run across the island you're like no <laughs> we already saw what just happened to the mongoose so there's no way you can make it right so it was uh it was uh essential to do that um to show one of those weed species that has de devastated island ecologies around the world, um, just not even lasting three minutes on Henders Island. Yeah, it was really cool. 
I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily approve of, how, of treating real animals that way, but in the context of, of, you know, like reading a book and, you know, like saying like, ah, I can understand the author is trying to prove a point here. Like I, I got that, but it was just like, yeah, this, this place kind of suck, but um, <laughs> no, it really was, it really was a very, it's a great island because you put together like an ecology that works um you had symbiosis with some creatures like seagulls like the creatures had evolved you know orifices so that you know like they could you know both help and eat seagulls i guess and you had um all the different life cycles you know of all the different creatures mapped out you had all of their you had their evolutionary weak points you had um modern parallels outside of that ecosystem it was really well put together and again like i said earlier this isn't something you just put together this is something that was definitely mapped out and thought about and it's really beautiful in that sense so as an adventure story i i definitely think that fragment is easier to read and a little bit more fast-paced than michael crichton I will say that. And then it, um, if, if I could compare the amount of fun that I had with it, there's an author called Jeremy Robinson and he did the Project Nemesis. I know Jeremy. Thing. Yeah, I know Jeremy. Uh, we've, yeah. we've corresponded a lot. Uh, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, he, he is a good guy. And um, he, he wrote the Project Nemesis books and the amount of fun that I had reading Fragment, I would akin to that but it was a much more grounded in reality read. Like this is something that I could imagine happening. And or, you know, it, it was just really great to have that feeling. It was kind of like the relic written by Jeremy Robinson, inspired by Michael Crichton. And it was just, it was a blast. It was great. It was, I really enjoyed the adventure aspect of it. You have a team of people, right? And they're not idiots. Like they don't just go and start poking things with a stick in this book. Like it, you, they get NASA grade vehicles, mobile labs, things like that. I mean, you can kind of see a bit of the lost world creeping in here, but they do it in such a way that they are trying not to tread on the ecology, but at the same time, they have a definite respect for that ecology. And when things go wrong, they go wrong. I'm not going to say how because you need to read the book. But um, when things go wrong, they are completely plausible. And the solutions that the main characters come up with are, they're grounded in reality. And they're the kind of things that, you know, people can understand, grasp, and not go, oh, you don't have to have a genius to figure out why they did that or why that's the solution that you need to look for. I think that having the introduction of another species at the end, which I am not going to give away, but um, I think that was absolutely brilliant at the end. I, I love those characters and how you gave them a non-human intelligence and how the mimicry of sound it, it, it's, it's a non-human mimicry and creatures which aren't human can mimic really well and learn and pick things up really well. And you did that. And I think that 
the way that you illustrated, again, that non-human intelligence, that was a very novel way of doing it. If I go back to one of my other favorite authors, Edgar Rice Burroughs, which is another great writer of a, of a linear adventure yarn, um, we could um, look at the Tharks and, you know, from John Carter or, you know, Princess of Mars storyline. And the Tharks are very human in the way that they think. However, they are a non-human intelligence. Right. So, so when we encounter these characters and they don't have a human thought process, they have to learn things, you know, like it to like, course to like correspond to like make sense to like understand the humans it's it's really cool and i think i think that uh even the setting of where you had that take place was really novel i really liked that but yeah it, it's just a really great adventure story rooted in yeah. science Henderson. yes well I'll, I'll you know a lot of people don't understand what you're the the revelation we, uh, that you're talking about right here um, and uh, wanted it to just be a, um, uh, you know, a bug fight all the way through. And, um, you know, the idea that there was a third act, you know, imagine that, you know, there's a third act, there's a big twist uh, that, that happens in the third part of the novel. Uh, a lot of people just aren't used to that. They're just used to just like, you know, it's a bug fight all the way to the end and everybody's splattering everywhere and that's the end, you know, and that's how it goes. So the idea that there was a big twist was, um, well, it was part of the whole theme of the book, really. It was, uh, you know, it needed to happen um, because the, the scientists are saying, oh, this is, uh, you know, these things are so dangerous. If they got off the island, they'd wipe out the planet Earth, right? And... Um, so then when there's an intelligent species, well, is that the most dangerous or should we save that species, right? So that's the whole crux of the whole book. That's what everybody's debating all the way through the book. So of course there needed to be an intelligent species someplace that somebody needed to think about and what, what, what are the risks involved? Um, in that, and, uh, and, and they decide, of course, well, look, if we can risk human beings being on this planet, then we need to be able to risk this too. And uh, so they, that's where our heroes turn out to be, you know, saviors, um, instead of just wiping out the island and destroying everything there is. Um, so, you know, that was a, that was a crucial part to, to giving the novel a third, that three-dimensional you know, uh, uh, story, um, which a lot of books don't have. I mean, it's just like, oh, there's a monster and we fight it until the end, you know, that's it. It's a two act story, basically. Monster, had, fight, end. Um, you had multiple layers going in the story at the same time because you had the threat of the island itself as in the rest of the world, not that it had bothered the rest of the world for millions and millions of years so you know well but, but um you know we had the rest of the world weighing in we had the threat to the characters themselves the protagonists and then we had the um what do you call it the moral debate of the climax of the book 
so you you had three really good things going on there. You had the uh, you had the catastrophe, you know, vein going. You had the threat of immediate danger, and then again you had a moral dilemma at the end. It was really great, and it was all based in science that anybody that picks up this book could understand. You explained it so well. Like it, it, I'm I'm I am in awe. This is a fabulously written book. Paul, I'm conscious that you're not saying anything here, mate. You did <laughs> read the book. Away. I did read the book. Um, and I'm currently reading um, the, the follow-up at the moment. So, <laughs> um, Oh, wonderful. That's yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll confess, I'm not a big reader. Um, I, I've read, I maybe read a book a, book a year. Um, and that's my book this year. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I read um, Fragment last year and... And fell in love as for all the reasons Joe said that it is completely believable and the actions of the characters are completely believable. What we what we said before, I love how the book starts off with the reality TV crew. That's just because I mean, this this because this book was was it two thousand and nine? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, I can't even remember when reality TV started. But it doesn't feel like it's been going on for that long. I, I guess it, I guess it has oh, been. Paul. <laughs> See, this is the thing. You come from the I'm land of goggle You come from the land of goggle box. I mean, you guys are watch other people watching TV. Oh, I don't. Well, some yeah, some people do. Um, but obviously, yeah, that's so they. You know, it starts off with a reality TV show in the seas, and they're like, oh, there's an island. Let's go have a look. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You go, you go and explore an unexplored island. See how that turns out for you. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people, it's funny to hear the, some of the criticisms people make. Um, they, they don't completely understand the reality TV show reality. That is, um, on those shows, every single thing that somebody wears is, is a product placement. So, you know, uh, their hats, their vests, their coats, their shoes their sunglasses, everything is product placement. Yeah. And so, so I actually, you know, name all those products. And a lot of people are, why do we need to hear about all these products? You know, well, what, what is he trying to advertise all these things? <laughs> you know, and they don't get it that that's, that's how reality TV shows work. And that's why you want to see them all slaughtered as soon as possible. But it's just so refreshing <laughs> because normally it's, um, there's there's a there's an island that people have heard stories about you know they're on this um they've charged of course this adventure and, and no it's just well, actually there's just they just happened to come across it it's yeah. it's just it's like oh that's you know that's such a refreshing take on this <laughs> yeah you know one of the you, you want to hear a story about uh researching fragment oh, absolutely while I was, uh, you know, uh, looking into this, of course, I consulted a lot of scientists, uh, real scientists, along the way, um, um, because I wanted this to be, you know, uh, the verisimilitude had to be very high to make this whole concept work. Um, and so you had to believe it, you know. And so I contacted uh, one uh, uh, carcinologist, a, 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 a crab specialist, um, at the University of New Jersey, who specialized in osmoregulation. 
And hypoosmoregulation is something that, that uh, blue crabs and other delta uh, species of crustaceans have to manage. They have to be able to go between salt and fresh water back and forth. They call that hypoosmoregulation. And uh, so obviously salt and the, the increasing salinity of the oceans was one of the main reasons that everything on Henders Island never escaped uh, and spread to the rest of the world. So I needed to get some specific uh, questions answered there. And I wrote to a guy named Don Lovett, a scientist who's the chair of biology at, uh, at New Jersey University, uh, specializing in this particular field. And I wrote to him and I said, uh, you know, Dr. Lovett, I, I, I need to know some specific answers about hypoosmoregulation in crustaceans for a uh, novel that I'm writing. And uh, I hope that you can uh, answer some of those questions. And he wrote back to me and said, what on earth kind of novel are you writing that you need to know answers about hypoosmoregulation in crustaceans? <laughs> And he said, uh, and then I answered and he said, oh, count me in, I'm there, I'm there. <laughs> so he, uh, when he heard the idea of the story, he uh, was very happy to be a co-pilot in uh, researching a lot of the science um, involved in the story. So yeah, I had, and I reached out to stomatopod experts and you know, all the top people in the field, they were very, very happy to, to assist uh, in making sure that the story was completely uh, as, uh, you know, it had the verisimilitude that I wanted it to have. I actually did go to uh, Woods Hole, as is in the, in the novel itself. You see Jeffrey go to the Associates of Cape Cod Laboratories to see um, uh, blue blood being extracted from horseshoe crabs in the very beginning of the book. I did do that. I, I, I wrote the scene and then I went there because Don Lovett was there at the at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. He brought me over to the Associates of Cape Cod Lab to see what I had described in my book. The only thing I got wrong was I had everyone wearing uh, sort of aqua blue smocks and they actually were uh, maroon uh, smocks. So I, I, I did change that. But uh, he brought me through and I was able to hold a, a uh, horseshoe crab um, in my hands as, you know, as this process was going on, they were draining this blue blood from these crustaceans. And uh, I uh, ended up going with him to, uh, to Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and uh, seeing, uh, oh, they have, they have this amazing thing. These scientists have this thing where um, anyone who's studying a particular creature, it doesn't matter what kind of creature it is, they'll say, I need to see this particular kind of crustacean from this bay of Antarctica um, brought here so that I can study it. And they will set up a refrigerated pool uh, and ship it no matter where it is in, on planet earth they will bring it to that scientist and they will set up the conditions where that species can live so that they can be studied 
there's there's like a whole lower level of the Oceanographic Institute at Woods Hole, where there's nothing but all of these pools and aquariums and stuff, where where these creatures have been shipped in, flown in from anywhere in the world, so that these scientists can study them. It's just amazing. And I, I was um, I looked over the shoulder of the one guy who was looking at squid axons. Uh, because the uh, squids have these really large axons. They're nervous. They're the cells of their nervous system, which are really uh, bloated, gigantic versions of what most other animals have. Uh, and so they study squid axons because they're so large, they can, you know, they're, they're easy to study. And uh, so he was looking at it through an electron microscope. And I looked over and he said, wow, you have the coolest job. And he said, no, you have the coolest job. You're a novelist. You write all these awesome things. And I was just like, well, you know, no, you're, you're the coolest. And he was like, no, you're the coolest. <laughs> it was back and forth. So yeah, it was, it was really fun uh, researching Fragment and Pandemonium, um, both. Um, and of course, Symbion. I mean, that's, that's uh, I love science and I love showing people uh, really interesting new ways of looking at biology. Uh, there's a there's a couple of theories, as you know, uh, that are the fire breathing chats, right? In in fragment and in pandemonium, you see some what are called fire breathing chats, right? And um, those are actually original theories of mine. I've been a sort of an armchair biologist all my life. And uh, so I put those theories into the book and believe it or not, I've had Oxford scientists reach out to me um, and they're studying longevity and senescence and why we age, why we, you know, why creatures age and die. And they've actually come to me and, and asked me, well, where did you hear this theory first? You know, uh, and I said, well, it's an original theory. And so they, wow, well, this means that we need to look at a completely different part of the human genome to find out why we age. And I said, well, go for it, you know. And, uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And they said, well, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, they've asked me for some details and I've given them the details of, the theory so that they could continue to search in that direction. Um, so, yeah. yeah. That's amazing. That is amazing. I think this is a perfect point that's to earmark. A, that's a fun thing. This is a perfect point to earmark for our first break. And when we come back, we will talk Pandemonium, which is the sequel novel to Fragment. So stay with us, folks. Hello, and welcome back to episode 79 of Kaiju Curry House. We are talking tonight with with amazing, amazing writer, Mr. Warren Fay, who wrote Fragment, who has written also Pandemonium. He is on the third book of this trilogy now. And you also wrote Magenta, if I remember that book name right. That's right. That's right. Brilliant. All right. So we're going to talk uh, Pandemonium now. And Let's just break this down. Paul, you're reading it right now. You actually flashed a copy. I am actually us. reading it right now. I'm about a third of the way through. Yeah. So we're going to spoil this for you horribly, right? <laughs> no, because you're not going to give any spoilers away. Okay. I'll, so, I'll be careful. 
<laughs> okay. So Paul's a stick in the mud. Anyway, um, I really enjoy Pandemonium. Um, I, I feel like I can say octopus puppets and you'll know what we're talking about, Paul. Have you gotten to that point yet? Yeah, I think I've got, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, the octopus puppets, that was a very novel thing. I liked that um, we went in the, you went in a different direction with this book. You still had some creatures from Hender's Island, but they have met their match in another ecosystem that has been locked away. And it's great. And it doesn't feel like the same people have bumbled their way into another locked away ecosystem. This is something that was found organically. And then the people that dealt with Hender's Island, they were kind of recruited by folks who were encountering this very specific problem. And it just kind of grows from there, shall we say. But uh, I really liked how it was done. I liked how you incorporated the weed species aspect from Fragment to justify some of those creatures surviving. I think that that was really well done. Uh, you, when we were on break, you called it a Swiss clock of a thriller. It is a great Swiss clock of a thriller. It is a very contained book. I mean, the last one was pretty contained. It was on an island, a uh, small island at that. But, you know, it's just this one is in a cave system. I feel like I'm giving nothing away there because you nope. see a guy in cave gear on the cover of a book. So there we go. But um, it is great. It is claustrophobic. It has all of the chittering, slimy, tentacly, pokey, clawy bits that the first book had. And you've got a great bunch of trust issues forming in this one. You have um, people not respecting um, what was learned in the original book. And I think that that's a great aspect that you touched on there because it, do it doesn't seem like people do that. Um, you've got uh, relationship building, like I was in characters, you fleshed out characters further in Pandemonium, which I felt was really good. And you created a really interesting dialogue between the creatures which had the non-human intelligence again. We, are, we have... A, a great um, development of those characters going forward with their human counterparts in this book. So my question is for you, without hopefully giving too much away to Paul, who is only a third of the way through the book, uh -huh. um, where did you come up with the idea? Why did, where did we go from island to underground? Like what? Well, that's a great question, actually. Uh, you know, uh, it, one of the, the, the inspiration, if you want to know what the inspiration for Fragment was, um, it, it hit me like a flash. I was, uh, I've always been a sort of armchair naturalist. I've always, you know, loved David Attenborough documentaries and so forth and, and read about uh, uh, biology from when I was a kid. And I, uh, I came across what is known as the Moville Cave, M-O-V-I-L-E, the Moville Cave in Romania. And 
this cave had been isolated uh, from the surface for 5 million years. And there were 33 species discovered in this cave, which is about the size of a cathedral. And they have no sunlight. There's no, there's no interaction with the surface at all. And all of these species had evolved completely separately from the rest of the whole world. And so they were completely new species, all 33 species. And I just said, that's it, you know, that's it right there. Um, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna, I'm going to create an entire ecosystem in an isolated place. And there's only three kinds of isolated places, whether it's an underground or an island, or it's a lake. Um, lakes are isolated from the ocean. Um, so those kinds of those three places are most the most uh, isolated kinds of ecosystems. And I decided that's it. That's what I'm going to do. From the Mobile Cave, the Mobile Cave was the inspiration for Fragment. So it was natural to do the second book in a cave um, because that's where you're going to find another kind of isolated ecosystem. And I decided to go uh, into the Devonian era um, so that there would be mostly mollusks instead of arthropods like you know, Fragment, um, which Fragment is all the way back to the Cambrian era. So you would have ar arthropods. Um, and th that's where that ecosystem split off from the rest of the planet. Um, but in Pandemonium, it's in the Devonian period. So you have mostly mollusks. And that's where it branched off from the rest of the world. And so um, that gave me a, a, a completely different panoply of, of animals to, to create monsters out of. <laughs> and um, so that's, that's where uh, I, I went back to kind of like my roots, the, the, the very root inspiration for Fragment by going underground in Pandemonium. That's fantastic. It's really good to see like where you came up with that and like where the idea sprung from. That's really cool. So mollusks, let's talk, let's talk slimy mollusks here for a moment. So when you were thinking about, I mean, I mean creatures, I mean, in a sense, like, I feel like from the beginning, you knew this was going to be a bit of a versus book because you, you definitely pit two eras against one another. So when you were thinking about creatures that could take on Hender's Island, bear in mind the mongoose lasted less than three minutes. You know, like what were you going for when you were thinking of these mollusks? Like were there, were there any like abilities, feats, you know, as we can call them? You know, like what, what was making, what was, what was gonna make them dangerous to the creatures of Hender's Island? Yeah, well, um, mostly the, the, I guess when you look at mollusks, you, uh, you, we, we think of snails and other things like that, which aren't very impressive, but the mimic octopus is probably the most impressive animal in the world, uh, next to the mantis shrimp, <laughs> right? And so uh, I decided that that is, is the most uh, in, in impressive and brilliant um, creature that can mimic uh, as many as 30 different kinds of animals as it, it actually changes the way it locomotes, which is, there's only one other species that does that. And that's of course us. 
so we can ski, we can jump out of an airplane and float through the air. We can, we can scuba dive, we can run, we can uh, flip backwards. We can do all these different things as animals that other animals only locomote in, in proscribed ways. Uh, you know, they'll run, they'll gallop, they can do a couple of different things, but, but a horse isn't going to stand up on its, lap, uh, on its two legs and walk around or stand uh, on its front two legs and, and walk around. We can do all that stuff. And so we're crazy in, in the animal kingdom. And mimic octopuses are the same way. They can do anything that any other animal does. They can walk on four legs. They actually do uh, across the bottom of the ocean. And so when I was looking at this, I was like, okay, that's, that's the, the apex uh, predator in this ecology. And we're going to have uh, the ghost octopus, which uh, I hope I'm not spoiling anything, but, but there is uh, a ghost octopus in, in uh, pandemonium. And uh, it uh, is able to do all of those things. It's able to mimic, uh, to, to use uh, the bodies of its prey in the same way that that prey is used to locomoting. So it can take a dead creature and make it move the way it normally moves when it's alive. And that's a very scary idea. It is a good yeah. idea. I like the idea that it's, it, it's using a creature with an internal structure to locomote outside of water and it is basically puppeting that creature and kind of it, it, like if you could like folks if you haven't read pandemonium you you really need to read fragment and then jump on over to this book because what we're describing here is these octopi octopuses that dispatch poor unwitting people and they then puppet them from like their backs essentially and like they they take these corpses and use them as a mode of transportation like basically their tentacles are taking the place of the muscles they're basically like hitching a ride on a meat skeleton so it really is an unnerving thing and this takes place in the dark underground so it it, it really is a spooky thing and it, yeah, it was really well contrived hell. yeah <laughs> it, it was well contrived <laughs> thank you <laughs> But yeah, that 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 was good, and yeah, again, it was just one of those things where you wonder, it's like, oh gosh, you know, Henders Island, that place was hell on earth. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what's the squid gonna do? Then you know, <laughs> that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, they brought it. Yeah, that's for sure. That was pretty good. But uh, yeah, oh Paul, you should have read more than a third of the book. <laughs> oh, I'm getting that. I'm just. I want to talk about more. <laughs> Oh, well, we won't give it away. <laughs> yeah, so, right. So I think we've more or less used up our time here, unfortunately, tonight. But you do have a third book in this trilogy, you know, coming. It is Symbiote, right? Symbiont. Symbiont, okay. And could you tease us with the release time of that? Are you one of those authors that can, you know, put it to uh, the audience uh, so you might get it done? Well, not, not a release time, but I can tease you with a little bit of a, the premise. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. Um, it's set in the Pacific Northwest, 
And is this going to be about the humongous fungus? The humongous fungus. Yes. Which, oh, I know it. <laughs> That's awesome. The gigantic fungus that is the symbiont, which has affected every single creature in the forest that it is, uh, that is its domain. And uh, it manipulates and zombifies everything in that forest, that, which is situated on a, an Indian reservation where the Native Americans do not go. Um, but the, some scientists decide it would be a nice idea to go there. And, um, and Those study- scientists, we've done a podcast about scientists <laughs> and their boneheaded ideas, let me tell you. Exactly. <laughs> And what they discover is that this symbiont is a couple of hundred thousand years old and stretches miles underneath the forest floor and controls everything within the forest and has, uh, it is uh, creating a, a gigantic and monstrous uh, sort of ecology or, or civilization almost of animals by collecting spores of fungus from from the air, which are from all over the world, and making it a sort of arboretum for for fungus and uh, cultivating and creating an evolution machine where all of the fungus and animals in this particular forest are being their their evolution is being accelerated by the symbiont to serve its own ends and uh that's all i'll say you can say a little more (laughs) (laughs) well that sounds great i'll read it yeah well now you will see nell and jeffrey again so very good those poor people they just keep getting roped into it (laughs) so that sounds great. Um, so we've reached the point in the podcast where we uh, discuss, if nothing else, where we make our recommendations, if anything interested you in tonight's podcast. So Warren, I feel like we have definitely plugged your books, but if you, as an armchair biologist, have any really cool natural reads you could throw out there, I'd be interested in hearing about those. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, well, um, actually, David Attenborough has written some really good books about, uh, uh, like, Life on Earth and some other books um, uh, like that, which are really wonderful capsulations of evolution. Also, Richard Dawkins, of course, many books uh, by him are fascinating in terms of understanding how things evolve, how the most crazy thing in the world can evolve. Um, and um, also, uh, yeah, um, there, well, those are the kinds of things that I read. I, I read Attenborough and Dawkins and uh, various scientists. Um, I love uh, Crichton's um, books are the most interesting to me. I don't I don't go in too much for thrillers that don't teach me anything. Uh, I'm kind of funny that way. I like to learn something about real science along the way. Now, there's a lot of books out there which are just pure fantasy, right? And they're fun. Um, but, uh, but I like to read um, books that actually teach me something new about real, real things. 
So that's why Crichton was always my goal. You know, I want to, you know, my high, my benchmark as far as what I was aiming for. Uh, I wanted to uh, write something in that, at that level. Um, because uh, that's what you walk away from it. And you, you know, yeah, that's why you end up getting emails 10 years later from people saying, I became a biologist because of your book, you know. Uh, so that's, that's the kind of stuff that I like to read and that I like to watch. And so uh, David Attenborough has been a, a sort of a spirit guide for me, uh, <laughs> a spirit animal um, in my, uh, my whole life. And so uh, I, I would say anything that he does, watch that. And, and you'll, get it, you'll, you'll feel the same thing that you feel when you read Fragment or Pandemonium. Uh, I know that he read um, Pandemonium and I know that he read uh, Fragment. Um, because he came out with a, he was published by HarperCollins, the same publisher as me. And uh, he came out right after Pandemonium came out. He came out with a whole series about stomatopods, mantis shrimp. Um, and so I was like, oh, thank you, David. And it's, it's great to see that kind of thing happen where you, you hear all your life, uh, you know, something you, you're receiving all this stuff from these people that you love. And then you kind of give back a little bit. Um, to that person, and uh, and they appreciate it. And you see that, and you say, "Oh, that makes it all worth it." <laughs> that's a wonderful thing. So, yeah, that's uh, that's what I would say. I mean, look at those real things, and then let your imagination soar when when you're reading *Fragment* and *Pandemonium*, uh, because this world is that crazy. You know, one of the things that I discovered while I was writing *Fragment* and *Pandemonium* was no matter how crazy the thing that I that I came up with, because I tried to come up with things that there's no way this exists, right? A rolling disc hand or a, a, you know, a thing with a springtail. Well, it turns out there are things called springtails that have exactly the same pad that springs underneath them that the spigers have in fragment. There really are those animals. And I didn't know that when I, when I came up with the, the spigers and the, and the Andrews rats. I just came up with that to, to come up with literally something that hadn't happened before. And there it was. And then I find out that not only are there spiders that roll down sand dunes in the, in the Sahara Desert the same way that the disc ants roll, um, but there are the, but the, embry, the embryonic, the, the babies of stomatopods, of all things, mantis shrimp, actually roll on their edges down into the surf. Um, through between waves, so there was literally nothing that I would that I could come up with that nature hadn't already beaten me to, uh, and that's how amazing the world is. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so now, Paul, it is your turn, sir. If nothing else, what will you recommend? Uh, well, I think with all this talk of islands and Crichton it's going to have to be Jurassic Park, which is the first novel I read. Um, oh. And I absolutely adored. I've still got you know, my original copy. I have mine um, too. It's yeah. I mean, that's because like, as a kid, I watched, uh, I read um, like lots of Roald Dahl books and stuff. And then, then I, I just stopped. Jurassic Park drew me back into books because I saw the film. 
and I was so mesmerized that I had to go read that book and then I had to go by and read The Lost World and you know and then Congo and it just kind of went on from there so I have Michael Crichton to thank for getting back into reading so oh, I, I think that's the the best recommendation that I can give oh yeah absolutely Jurassic Park is such a wonderful novel uh you you, you completely feel the authenticity of the place because of the way that he focuses on what, how it's built, where, where did, were these things commissioned from? The, the, down to the level of what kind of light bulbs are in, in the overhead uh, lighting of the dinosaurs, you know, and where they were, where they came from. And, oh, he's wearing this Gore-Tex, you know, a, a netting that, that, he uses for his backpack and all of those little specific details which which just you completely suspend your disbelief and you're completely on uh island new bar and and uh, you are you are in jurassic park it's wonderful absolutely <laughs> yeah i agree but joe what are you gonna recommend to us I'm going to kick the trend. I'm not going to recommend a book this time. I'm the resident book recommender. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I feel like we've done a book podcast. I'm just going to veer off in a completely different direction. So Kaiju fans, there is a fabulous Kickstarter going on at the moment. It is by David Silva. You may know him from McFarland Toys or NECA figures. He has done two lines prior to this one there was a beast of the mesozoic raptors or dromaeosaurs there was a beast of the mesozoic ceratopsians ceratopsians however you want to pronounce it which is like triceratops and the like and um that recent kickstarter the ceratopsians is just like wrapping up now he just launched as of yesterday at the time of this recording september 22nd would be the day that it was launched the Tyrannosaurus Rex line of Beast of the Mesozoic action figures. So bit of a dream scenario here. Uh, we have scientifically accurate, fully posable Tyrannosaurus Rex and kin figures. And some of the really cool things that have been done here, there were fan votes on the colors for the T-Rex on two different variants. There was a walking with dinosaurs variant, which is cool. And there was a dino riders variant color. And the great thing is, is they got the original dino riders artist to come back and do the box art with a scientifically accurate T-Rex. They come in two different sizes, the T-Rex too. And I think there's a 118th scale one, which is truly gigantic. That's like on the verge of being the same size as the Kenner Big Red Jurassic Park T-Rex figure. So these things, um, the ones I just described with the alternate paint jobs, are only available via the Kickstarter, which is going to end in October. Please, please back this project because I want the Gorgosaurus with the amazing paint job, and that's one of the stretch goals. <laughs> so. So go ahead and check out the Beast of the Mesozoic Tyrannosaurus, Tyrannosaur line on Kickstarter. Um, may not be your cup of tea to have the figures, but they are selling the prints of all the art and they are signed prints. So that's oh, nice. good stuff too, if you appreciate the art. 
but it's a great project. And again, because it's scientifically accurate and they are figures, there's the potential that these can get in the kids' hands, inspire some folks to really enjoy some stuff. Or if you're a massive geek like me and you have figures behind, in front, and to the side of you, by all means, they are absolutely awesome. They're pristine. I have some of the Raptors and I am really looking forward to seeing how much farther he takes this line, but go for that. Uh, dinosaurs are by far and large the inspiration for a lot of Kaiju. So I think I, there will be a lot of like minds out there checking out this Kickstarter. Absolutely. Great. Great. <laughs> also check out Fragment by Warren Fay. <laughs> it's a great book. You need to do that. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Warren, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Once you finish that third book, we'll have to have you back on and talk about it. And yeah. folks, as always, keep it kaiju. Oh.